I'd like to welcome Alan Murray, the CEO of Fortune, but also our guests to this is second ACCF webinar on the COVID economy. Larry Summers kicked it off, and a recording of it is on the ACCF website. Alan perhaps said it best in his daily CEO uh, newsletter. Uh, he said it at 6.44 this morning, and I read it three minutes later, but here it is, quote, it is impossible to be a citizen of the world and not ache at the devastation brought by COVID-19. The John Hopkins tracking of it found 2 million confirmed cases across the globe, 137,000 deaths, 31,000 in the U.S. With health um, concerns paramount at the moment, the pandemic's effect on the business and the economy are also taking a human toll. Perhaps that's a good departure for the three questions that Alan and I talked about. Uh, but before I forget, Alan is the CEO of Fortune, as I mentioned. He oversees the business and editorial operations. He writes newsletters. Um, he, um, he started his career at age nine, uh, which, I, which is quite remarkable. I could never compete with Alan. I started mine at 15 as an intern on the Hill. Uh, we met in 1983 where he spent two decades at the Wall Street Journal subsequently. But most important is his passion, his passion for life, for those who know him, his passion for journalism, from which I and so many have benefited. Alan, is there anything you want to say before I go to the three questions we discussed? No, I just uh, uh, thank you for inviting me. Thank you uh, for this opportunity to reconnect with the ACCF, which I've uh, been familiar with and admiring of uh, since 1983. Well, thank you. Uh, question number one, the economic impact. Um, you mentioned, unfortunately, today, like many businesses, you've had to lay off some valid uh, colleagues and friends. Um, and that brings me back to something that you and I discussed. And that is the digital revolution. We've had an industrial revolution. Now we've got a digital revolution and its economic impact. You dealt with it early in your career in the media and business, um, and you pointed out that it's now been accelerated with the COVID economy. Um, would you, could you comment on, on those, that revolution we have and, and what it's gonna do to the economy now that it's accelerating? What will the new economy be like? Yeah, so, so look, let me, uh, uh, let me first of all be clear in terms of the macro economy. We've never seen anything like this. Uh, uh, we're now looking at the likelihood of the unemployment rate going well into the double digits, which is not something I think we hit 10 percent in the last recession. But but now we're talking 16, 17, 18 percent, uh, you know, the the 90 percent drop in airline traffic in the 75 percent drop in hotel rooms booked all the the uh, restaurants that are closed and the the shutting down of of. Uh, groups, you know, large groups, sports. I mean, it's it's unprecedented. And I think early in March or even in the middle of March and maybe still sometimes in the stock market, you see people who think we're going to bounce right back out of it, that it's going to be a V-shaped recovery. I, I, I just don't, I, I think that's is a misunderstanding of the nature of the crisis. I don't know how it can be a V-shaped recovery given that we know that there are going to be 
mean, we heard from a, a group of the governors that we're not going to see sporting events, for instance, until 2021. Uh, travel, all of those things are going to be affected. So it's going to be a slow recovery. But to your question, I do think uh, there is a lot of evidence, and I've heard this from a number of the CEOs I've talked to, uh, that this is accelerating the digital transformation. I mean, uh, one of the CEOs I uh, uh, heard this from was uh, uh, Mindy Grossman, who runs Weight Watchers, which has you know realized th- that they had to make a, a, a big transition as a result of the fact that everybody was at home and only dealing with each other digitally. We're doing it at Fortune. Uh, uh, Fortune has traditionally gotten 40% of its revenues from events uh, and most of its profits from events, in-person, high-level executive events. We're making a sharp pivot to digital. Virtually every CEO I've talked to over the last month has said the same thing to me, which is the transition was happening anyway. The people who were further along in their transformation are happy about it right now. The people who were lagging behind are unhappy about it. I don't know if uh, J.C. Penney has uh, declared bankruptcy yet, but <laughs> I think we're, we're close to that. Uh, and everybody is is accelerating it. So it's going to be interesting. I think there are going to be very permanent changes that come out of this crisis in, in the direction of uh, a, a digital economy. Well, um, those are the two things that um, I think are, are very, very dramatic um, and, and will have long-lasting impact. Ready for the second question, the business community. And for those of you who don't read, and obviously after the webinar, will read Alan's daily uh, CEO newsletter. He said on Monday, he's recommitting himself to the goals of stakeholder capitalism, which I guess is different than what used to be called shareholder capitalism. You've been a student of American business for 20 years. Um, Two of the books that that I've read of yours, one was called The showdown in the revolt in the boardroom. Then you also had showdown at Gucci Gulch, uh, whereas, you know, I still feel I was unjustifiably villainized. But (laughs) you were lionized, Mark. You were lionized. (laughs) You feel, as you said, with the creme de la creme of American business today. So to look at your recent uh, newsletter, you are, quote, inundated by press releases from companies touting their good work. Yeah. So is it a brief grab for free good PR or reflection of a larger corporate purpose? That's the question. I, I, I don't I don't think it's a brief grab for PR overall. I mean there may be some of that. I, I think something very big and very different is going on. You were kind to say that I've been doing this for 20 years. I've really been doing this for about 40 years. Um, and have watched the relationship between business and society very closely for many years from Washington, now from New York. Uh, and, and I think something very different is happening. It's really been in about the past four or five years that it started to happen. And, and, and let me say, I didn't come to the stakeholder capitalism issue out of a desire to, a personal desire to do good. I came, I came to it because as a journalist, I kept hearing more and more CEOs talking about this. 
And I've, I've been in a unique position, particularly the last 15 or 20 years, uh, having worked for CNBC, doing a television show, organizing conferences for the Wall Street Journal and for Fortune. I spend a lot of time talking to CEOs, so I have the opportunity to ask them. I, I think it, you would really, I, I tend to trace it back to after the Great Recession. And there was a moment when Bill Gates gave a, a, a speech in, uh, in Davos at the World Economic Forum and started talking about uh, what he called the need for more creative capitalism. And then you, over the course of the next five or six years, you saw an explosion. John Mackey from Whole Foods created conscious capitalism. Uh, Michael Porter at the Harvard Business School created this shared value capitalism movement. Mark Benioff started talking about compassion and capitalism. A whole bunch of people were putting modifiers in front of capitalism and said, we really have to uh, uh, think differently about this. And, and for me, I, I saw a real acceleration in 2016. Um, uh, Brexit was a big motivation because it was a repudiation of the establishment and these CEOs are to some degrees, the definition of the establishment. They said, wow, you know, we're doing something wrong here. The U.S. election in 2016, where you had Donald Trump, who was uh, running against globalization, which is how many of these large companies, you know, it had been their religion for four decades. Uh, uh, and on the other side, you had an avowed socialist, Bernie Sanders, taking a, a lot of the momentum. So, uh, that was when I really, you not only had the positive motivation, we want to do good in the world, but you also had the negative motivation. If we don't do better than what we're doing right now, we may lose our operating license. Um, and so at Fortune, we started, uh, we did a, a couple of things. About five years ago, we have, all, we have lists. We measure companies on everything, uh, how large they are, how fast they grow, uh, how much their employees like them, how much, how admired they are. We didn't have anything that looked at social impact. So we created a change the world list that uh, working with Michael Porter's uh, consulting firm, a nonprofit consulting firm, FSG, to look, uh, to, to put a spotlight on companies that were making major progress addressing social goals as part of their core business activity, profit-making activity, not philanthropy, but, you know, said, we're going to address, we're going to try and address climate change or address health issues as part of our core uh, philosophy. Then in December of 2016, we took about 100 CEOs to the Vatican and had an amazing uh, session there. We didn't invite any government officials, any politicians. The CEOs broke off into working groups saying, what can the private sector do to address climate problems? What can the private sector do to address health problems? And, uh, and all the C and it was big company CEOs like Siemens and WPP. And, uh, it was, it was a great group and all of the C and that we met with the Pope, uh, after that, all, all the CEOs came out of there saying, we have to keep this going because this is a really important, even, uh, existential conversation for business and capitalism. And so we created something, uh, called the CEO initiative, uh, which has grown, it now has about 160, 170 CEOs in it. But so I, I, in, in, as a journalist, I believe this thing has been building steadily over the decade. Uh, and the, the business roundtable statement that came out in August of last year was, was kind of the tipping point. Now, 
I spend a lot of time asking people why, what's really driving this? Is it a desire for PR? Is it all a reaction to the political realities? I think there's a lot of different pieces to it. Um, the number one thing that CEOs told tell, CEOs tell me when I ask them why is they say because our employees want us to do it. We live in an economy where talent has become the most valuable resource. It's not finance anymore. It's not oil. It's not equipment. It's people, uh, and and particularly young people, but people in general want to work for companies that are doing good in the world. So. I think the employees have been the biggest driver in the last couple of years. Consumers have become more of a driver. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, very recently, you've even start, started to see the financial community uh, uh, come into play. You've got, uh, someone told me that 40% of investment funds today have some sort of an ESG screen on them, environmental, uh, social. Some of them are pretty loose, not very meaningful. But, you know, and then you think about the Larry Fink uh, newsletter. So you really have others coming into it. One more thing I want to say, and then I'll shut up. But you only have three questions. So I guess I can I can go long on your questions. Um, uh, uh, I think it also reflects a change in the way businesses have to be led today. Good businesses. Um, If you think back, Mark, three decades ago, four decades ago, big companies were kind of information hierarchies. You had all these people out in the field who would uh, filter information up to the top. And then you had a group of people in the C-suite who would uh, accumulate all that information, formulate a strategy, and then the orders would come back down the chain, right? That was what companies did. That model has been blown up for lots of reasons. The biggest one is things are changing too fast. If you wait for the people at the top to set a strategy and tell you what to do, you're going to be way behind the curve. So decision making has been forced out to the ends, uh, uh, to the edges. Information flow, is, information flow has changed dramatically. Information doesn't just go up to the top; it goes everywhere, omnidirectional, all the time, which has made it possible to push decision making out to the edge. And it's left the people at the top with a very different job. It's less about telling people what to do more about setting standards, setting values, motivating people. I mean, one of the most fascinating conversations we had at the Vatican in 2016 was about uh, CEOs as corporate leaders. Um, Well, I mean, I'm sorry, not CEOs as moral leaders and moral leadership. I don't know about you, but that was not a conversation before 2016 I had ever had with a group of CEOs in in four decades uh, doing this. Um, just one more one more data point that shows how much things have changed. Uh, we've had in the last three or four years a spate of CEOs speaking out on truly controversial social issues that you know as well as I do. Ten years ago, no CEO would have talked about. You know, it started with Mark Benioff uh, openly criticizing the Indiana religious liberties law, but then you had a much more conservative guy like uh, Brian Moynihan head of Bank of America, uh, uh, the largest employer in the state of North Carolina, criticizing North Carolina's law limiting transgender access to bathrooms. You had Delta Airlines in Georgia uh, taking away its uh, uh, benefit program for the NRA, even though the, the legislature of Georgia 
is the majority of members of it are also members of the NRA. And they had a tax bill that affected Delta before them at the time they did it. So you see this, um, uh, you see businesses taking public positions on controversial issues that don't very directly affect their bottom line. And this is all part of this change. It's because they feel this is, they have to lead on values. That's the way you run a company today. I don't think any of those things are going to change in this COVID crisis. In fact, some of them are being uh, reinforced. If you think about the pharmaceutical industry, for instance, uh, the pharmaceutical industry over the course of the last decade had managed to become probably the uh, most unpopular industry in the country. There are polls that show that, and that that's because of possibly the, its role in the opioid crisis, also because of these pricing scandals, you know, Martin Shkreli or Valiant, jack-up prices, cut research. And what, what you see going on now is this amazing rush to partner, cooperate, to come up with therapies, cures, vaccines, testing approaches uh, to COVID-19, most of which the executives will tell you are, are not going to be big profit makers for their company, but they're, but they're doing it because it's the right thing to do. And the CEOs I talk to tell me it's incredibly energized their employees at, at a critical time. So uh, for all those reasons, I, I think what, what has been going on is going to continue for some time. And, it's, and it, is a, it is a major change. You know, Mark, it was Milton Friedman who said, the social responsibility of businesses to make a profit, period. Um, and what these folks are saying, no, that's not quite right. I mean, we have responsibility responsibilities to our employees, to the communities we operate in. We have responsibilities to the natural environment. And sure, at the end of the day, um, we also have to take care of our shareholders. Uh, but, but but saying it's shareholders first and foremost or shareholders only is a, a mistake. Well said, Alan. And uh, as you know, I run a nonprofit, but I have to look at my investors too. And so I'm going to break from my third question and ask one of our guests. His name is David Brown. He's Senior Vice President of Exelon. David asks, can you talk about the importance of maintaining liquidity and whether the Fed is likely to expand its commercial paper funding facility to include tier two companies like utilities providing electric, gas, and water services while suspending their disconnections due to non-payment. Maybe a little technical, but it talks about all the challenges, new challenges to our economy. Yeah, I, I don't know that I can... Uh, uh... I'd be careful about predicting the Fed and whether the Fed will get the particular type of paper that uh, Mr. Brown wants. But what 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 I will say is this is just stunning, stunning what's happened in the last what the government has done in the last two weeks. And even after what we went through in uh, uh, 11 years ago, uh, uh I never thought I would see the day where the Federal Reserve would uh, be buying junk bonds, basically, or, you know, on the verge of it. And, and uh, uh, I mean, I, I give uh, Jay Powell a lot of credit. They moved incredibly swiftly to address this thing. 
but we've never seen anything like this. I have to tell you, uh, Fortune applied for the Paycheck Protection Act, and we got our money yesterday. I think we may have been one of the last checks to go out the door before they ran ran out of money. Uh, uh, but just lightning speed, and you you know, we we have never in our experience. This didn't happen during the depression. I, it's not just our experience. We have never in history seen uh, the American government or probably any government move so quickly to shovel. Uh, government cash outside the door. And I tend to think that willingness to experiment in the face of an unprecedented crisis is a good thing, but it is one of those things that you have to say, wow, holy cow, we have never seen this before. And what are the, what are the unanticipated effects going to be? Uh, anyway, that's all a very long-winded way of saying at the moment, both the Fed and the, and Congress and uh, the White House and the Treasury all seem to be willing to do whatever it takes. And so uh, without knowing uh, the details of the particular security that Mr. Brown's asking about, if I had to bet, I bet they'll do it. Well, the economy is rapidly changing, business is rapidly changing, and you may have expected the next one. The media, this time, what have they got right and what have they got wrong? Um, I'm, I'm, well, let me, let me, uh, I'm very disturbed about, uh, uh, where the media is. And, but I have to stop for a second and say, you know, people talk about the media, this, the media, that, uh, it's become a pretty meaningless phrase. There is no mainstream media. I mean, there was, when I started my career, there were a couple of newspapers and three wire services and three nightly news shows that pretty much controlled the agenda. And they probably, all the people who work for them probably spent too much time going out to lunch together. And maybe there was a group mindset that is gone now. Uh, uh, basically with the launch of the, of uh, the online platforms, anybody can be the media. Uh, and we've seen many demonstrations of that, you know, uh, Kim Kardashian is the media as an incredibly powerful voice. Donald Trump is the media. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it always amuses me to watch Fox News and hear Fox News talking about the mainstream media and say, well, wait a minute, you're the biggest cable network out there. What, who are you? So, uh, so I think you have to be careful generalizing. Um, but uh, what worries me about the current situation is, first of all, the the lack of appreciation for facts, fact checking, fact verification, uh, uh, and the really uh, destructive relationship between the president and uh, organizations like CNN and the New York Times and the Washington Post, where he attacks any story they write if he doesn't like it. He throws out facts that he knows are not correct, but he also knows that they're, they're like, it's like throwing a bone to a dog. Then they come back and say, oh, oh, the president said this and the president said that, and it's, it's right. And it, I think it's serving his purposes um, because it's, you know, it's, it's, it is more or less proving to his base that the media is trying to bring him down. Uh, 
in a very narrow sense, it serves the media purpose, media's purpose in the sense that CNN has better ratings than it's ever had before. Uh, the New York Times has had a, and the Washington Post have both had a surge in subscriptions, which they needed because uh, advertising has has been declining. So in a narrow sense, it serves their business purposes. But I think when it's all over, uh, we will be left with very few media outlets that have the ability to speak the na- speak to the nation as a whole with any degree of, of respect or trust. I think the Wall Street Journal is still doing a pretty good job of, of maintaining the balance, uh, but, uh, but there's not much left. I, I think it's been a, a, a terrible time for facts, most importantly, and for the media business more generally. Well, about the media business, remember we're talking to high energy Alan Murray. What he does is he has this daily CEO uh, report that you should get, but he also they also publishes 15 newsletters. Are you ready for the ones I like? Bullshit. No, bullshit. bullshit. Uh, which is his bullshit, which is a newsletter about uh, finance and analysis. I hope I get this one, one right, Alan. Broadsheet, which is about uh, the powerful woman. And then there's broadside, if you are one, which are tips and advice uh, from Fortune magazine. So he's an entrepreneur. Um, I do want to say when I talk to Alan, it's not about fake news. Quite frankly, it's not about real news. It's about news. Alan uniquely provides a combination of old-fashioned beat reporting and being a columnist and, and this is when unusual about Alan, a foresighted leader of the media business community today. Your passion, Alan, continues to inspire me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you, and thanks to everyone who uh, joined the call.